John Phillips, in his commentary on Romans, refers to sin as the old monarch now defeated, the king who's been defeated. And sometimes we are slow to embrace the reality because sin seems larger than life in our daily experience. It seems to be an undefeatable uh, enemy. The message of Romans 6 comes as a refreshing word to the weary, and I really believe that at the pace we're setting with this, that we would take in uh, these truths and that it would be a life-changing experience for us as a church family. We have transitioned in the letter of Romans from the theme of being justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone to living out the Christian life in an ongoing process called sanctification, which does not end in this life is progressive in nature, meaning sometimes I seem like I'm growing and then it's a number of steps back and yet the sign of the true believer is that it's continuing to grow as we trust in Jesus Christ. I would add on the front end as we're called to strive, as we're called to uh, yield, as we're called to cooperate with the Spirit of God and being conformed into the image of Jesus, not to mingle justification and, sing- and sanctification. Justification is a work of God alone. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't add to it. We don't contribute to it. I'm reminded of the five solas that came out of the Protestant Reformation, Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. That in the cross of Jesus Christ, God accomplished what we could never do on our own. Our sanctification, however, is living out the reality of who we are in Jesus Christ. The root word for sanctification is holiness. And it's vital for those on the road to heaven. Maybe your idea of the Christian life is I really don't have to work hard for it. I really don't have to think hard about it. Kind of like um, the inoculation you got when you were in elementary school. And I, I think I've shared with you before this frightening memory from childhood when I was in kindergarten and the nurse was there and she had her air compressor gun with the immunization. And I can remember being in the line with the older kids, um, older grades, and we were all getting, I think, polio or what, I don't know. But anyway, all I heard was this (laughs) And I kept getting to the back of the line thinking, I want mommy. (laughs) And so, um, you know, eventually I get up there and Hey, that wasn't bad and went, on, went about my business. But you know, when you get immunized, you think I got the antibody within me, I don't have to worry about it anymore. And a lot of people view salvation like that, and that's a deadly mindset. I, got, I said the prayer, I walked the aisle, I did the baptism thing, I'm good. I don't ever have to think about my walk with Jesus Christ again. Church, yeah, that's important. But as far as really laboring and striving and seeking to put sin off and growing and entering into Bible study, that's an ongoing process. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's amazing. 
So that's a description of a holiness that you and I should be desiring in our life, namely to be like Jesus Christ. And without that desire, without that pursuit, I really don't have a biblical assurance for my salvation. And worse, I could be deceived thinking I got the shot long ago, but not having the reality, not really having a saving relationship which is ongoing and worked out. The danger of being lulled to sleep. The Christian life is a striving, a pursuing of holiness. And I think that this whole idea is a challenge to the mindset of our generation to where we really don't want to put a lot of effort into anything. You mean I got to think? No, I'm not going to think about my, my Christianity. I think enough during the week when I go to school, when I do my job. I want to be on autopilot when I come to church. I want to not be so serious about it. That is a, that's a dangerous way to think. Because that's not the way the Apostle Paul thought about his Christian life. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 25 through 27, he uses the athletic motif. He says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. So, you know, the Olympic runner, he's not, she's not stopping by the donut shop on the way to the track. Uh, she, you know, there's self-control to be exerted. Uh, they, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box. He's changing metaphors all through this paragraph. I do not box as one beating the air like shadow boxing, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. That's how Paul thought about the Christian life. I'm running a race <clears throat> and I need, I'm in training and I need to show self-control. And there were two uh, competitions that I think would have been in the mind of the Corinthians who uh, would have known of the Olympic Games. And Corinth hosted the Isthmian Games. Corinth was established on an isthmus, if you remember uh, geography from uh, school. You know, a, a narrow body of land between two bodies of water, a narrow strip of land between two bodies of water. Uh, Corinth was, was established on an isthmus, and so they would have the Isthmian Games. And uh, so they would understand the athletes coming to town and competing in these games. And Paul is saying, look, they, you know, they, they compete for a wreath that's going to die. It's going to wither. There were other benefits. No more taxes for life. That sounds pretty good. <laughs> but, but all of it, all of it, you know, is, is subject to this world and to decay. Um, and so this would have been in their mind, and Paul is talking about his Christian life. I need to, I need to show self-control. The way athletes train for an event, I need to, I need to show self-control, which interestingly is the last of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit in your life and mine is that we're showing self-control over all desires of body and thought and mind. Spiritual disciplines. Mastering, the, the mastery of anything in life requires what? Commitment. 
I was talking to some brothers at our men's prayer breakfast this morning and, and just thinking about, you know, the, being an engineer. We have a lot of engineers in our church. Being an engineer, you didn't get there in a week. You gave your life to mathematics, which by the way, I was glad to see in my rearview mirror when I graduated from <laughs> You guys went on, ladies went on. You spent a lot of time to master your field. I don't want a dentist who is not trained, do you? Doctor? Uh, yeah, I just got started last, no, no, no thank you. Last month, last week, I want somebody who's trained, who's put in the, the time and the effort and the blood, sweat and tears to give it an honest effort in this world so when we think of our Christian life, you know, can you expect to advance in school or in your work or in anything in this life with just a paltry uh, amount of time? How many people give so little? How many professing believers give so little to the Christian life? Paul has a focus. He said, I don't want to live aimlessly. I don't want to beat the air like a boxer, faint boxing, jabbing without impact. I want to discipline myself. And that's an interesting word. Um, let, he says in verse, uh, the, verse 27, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Uh, the root to that word discipline means to strike under the eye. And Paul fought the bodily impulses to keep them from preventing him from his ultimate pursuit, which was Jesus Christ and his calling upon his life. That's serious, wouldn't you, wouldn't you say? That is worth our best efforts and thoughts. And we, begin, we become impatient with anything requiring hard work or prolonged work. And Paul knew the foundational truths of every for every believer, and that there was no use in rushing ahead on how to live the Christian life if you weren't aware of the foundation. And so as we come to Romans chapter six, with this picture of an athlete in training, with focus, with discipline, all the while knowing that all the discipline of the world is not gonna earn his favor with God, this is the outflow of what it means to be a, a follower of Christ. His main concern was, I don't want to be disqualified. And this isn't talking about the loss of salvation. Paul, didn't want to grow, Paul wanted to grow diligently and receive a reward from Christ at his return. He did not want to build his life on wood, hay, and stubble, which would burn. So our sanctification flows from the foundation of our justification and we have been justified to break the power of sin and to shine for the glory of God. And that requires all of our efforts. Our sanctification is something for which we cooperate with God in our lives. So I'd like to maybe get started with a question as we look to Romans 6, as Paul is challenging the original readers and us um, with this question. How can we who died to sin still live in it? That's verse two. And I think it's the key to understanding what he's trying to say through this whole chapter. How can we who died to sin still live in it? What it means to be a Christian is that 
through our union with Jesus Christ, through our faith in Him and our, our being received by Him, we have died to sin. That is the reality that is factual. This beautiful union with Christ places us into the finished work, His finished work on our behalf. In Christ we died. In Christ we've been made alive. That's what baptism pictures. And that's how we are to live. The resurrection of believers is, is still a future reality. We haven't resurrected from the dead yet. We we're living in a fallen world, but that is our future. So how can we who died to sin still live in it? What's the answer to that? We shouldn't. God forbid. Which moves us secondly to verse 11. Consider it done, believers. Consider it done, believer. You are dead to sin and alive to God. Now, there's a transition, a transition here in, in chapter 6 that maybe you haven't um, noticed. I'm thankful for the commentary by Thomas Schreiner who said of this transition in verse 11, we're moving from the indicative, which is factual reality. Paul is stating factual things in the indicative tense of the verbs to the imperative to commands. And often we, we want to rush ahead and we want to look at Romans 12, which fleshes out how we're to live the Christian life. But we need to understand who we are and where we are in our position in Christ to be able to move forward in the power that God has given to us, lest we be discouraged and lose heart, or worse, be deceived in thinking that by our law-keeping and our fine performance that somehow we've earned God's favor. So we find in verse 11 through 13, four commands. He's giving commands now. And basically the idea is Schreiner notes, become what you're becoming. That's the challenge. In Christ, become what you're becoming. Those who are slaves through their sin will face eternal death. And the beauty of the gospel is that by his finished work, we've been delivered from that bondage. But notice in chapter 6, verse 16, how he refers to this bondage to sin, this slavery to sin. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? Either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, of the two, which do we want to pursue? Not sin. We want to, we want to pursue obedience. We want to pursue righteousness in Christ. Verse 21, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed. Sin brings shame. But he closes that verse, verse 21, for the end of those things is death. And then finally, we're familiar with Romans 6.23. It's part of the Roman road gospel presentation. For the wages of sin is what? But the gift of God is what? Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So... The gospel has set us free from that. And so these commands we find, verse 11, we must consider, we must count, we must reckon that we are dead to sin and alive to God. That's a command. Consider it. Let no sin, verse 12, reign in your mortal body. 
Verse 13, do not present your members to sin, but as instruments of righteousness. And likewise, in verse 13, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. These are commands in light of who we are in Jesus Christ. So look at that with me in verse 11. Consider yourselves dead to sin. Consider it done, believer. Because I think there's some confusion here that I pray our time just thinking about this, that this is something I need to work towards. No, that's not, that's not the tense of, of what's being presented here. This is something that's already happened. If I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm to consider, consider it done. What done? That I, I'm dead to sin and I'm alive to God. In Christ, we must consider ourselves dead to sin Namely, when temptation comes, when offers come, we're to say to them, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what it comes down to. Whether it's expressed in words or not, that is the mindset that we're to have as believers because we're dead to sin and alive to God, which is the power to overcome these things and even have a mind to do it. This is more than mind over matter. This word... Consider it or count it uh, is, a, is an accountant's term, logizomai. It's you, it was used in business transactions, in evaluating worth or considering a venture's gains or losses. We get the English word log, so you can see the accountant with a sharpened pencil putting it in the log or um, logistics or logarithm comes from this word. Uh, a second usage would, of logizomai also is used in philosophy in a sense of reasoning, so it becomes logical. Um, so the common ground in these two usages has to do with reality, with things that are, are true of us in Christ. For the believer, we must consider ourselves, for this is really the way it is to be dead to sin and alive to God. Now think of that mindset alone, waking up every morning. Do we ever even think of that? That this indeed is my position in Jesus Christ. I'm dead to sin and alive to God. That's, that's who I am. Even though I battle with sin, I think that would be a huge, big step to overcoming bondages that we face and besetting sins that cause us grief count on this. Consider this. And we are dead to sin. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a, a powerful British preacher through the 20th century in Great Britain, uh, he added a number of things that this phrase, dead to sin, doesn't mean. <laughs> this is what it doesn't mean. And sometimes that's helpful to understand what it means. So, what it doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that it's my duty as a Christian to die to sin. Well, that seems contradictory. Well, the text has nothing to do with duty. It, it's concerned with fact. And that's already happened. By faith in Jesus Christ, we have died to sin. That's not something we're doing out of duty. 
that's been done for us. Second, not a command for me, this is not a command for me to die to sin. How can I be told to do what has already been done to me? Thirdly, it doesn't mean that I'm to consider that sin as a force in me is dead. It's not. It's alive and well. Would love to rear its ugly head through things that I say, through attitudes of my mind and heart, through things I should do, I don't do. It's alive and well, and I must contend with it, and I must put it off. I must put it off. Fourthly, it doesn't mean sin in me has been removed, eradicated. I remember a dis- disillusioning experience in college, and I was a new believer, and I had someone come up to me, very charismatic, and he says, you know, in Jesus Christ, sin's been removed. I, I no longer sin. I said, wow, I'm not there. <laughs> and he was terribly in error. But you can imagine as a young believer, someone saying, you know, in Jesus Christ, sin's been eradicated. I no longer sin. You're a liar. <laughs> According to 1 John, if anyone says he's not sinned, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. But if we confess our sins, and he's talking to believers, John is, in 1 John 1. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Fifthly, it doesn't mean that I'm dead to sin as long as I'm in process of gaining control of it. Often we feel out of control, don't we? That's why the reality and understanding this um, is so important in the ebb and flow of Christian life that I continue in this race and I continue to submit myself to God. And then finally, it, it does not mean that considering myself dead to sin makes me dead to sin. That is in reverse. What Paul is saying is that because we have died to sin, we are to count on it. It's been dealt with through the work of our Savior, and yet we contend with it. So this being alive to God, dead to sin and alive to God, what does that mean? Well, I've been reconciled with God. I'm no longer an enemy with God. I've been received as a son of God, adopted into his forever family. I'm a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. I'm under a new covenant that was established through the blood of my Savior. I'm cultivating new thoughts. I have new goals. I have a new destiny. I have a new life. And I love what Christ has done for me through his grace. He's bringing in new friends. And I'm connected with a church body that I don't know how I could live without them. So count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that is ultimate reality, isn't it? When you think about the purpose of your salvation, we were saved and redeemed for God's glory and ultimate reality to think about, okay, I need to put off sin. And maybe you're thinking, this is kind of radical. This is kind of radical. I just would push back a little bit about it because I see this as so clear as the, the emphasis of Scripture, not only in the, the call to follow Jesus in the Gospels, but in the letters of Paul. How come it's celebrated and encouraged to be energized by the events of this world, but not to be energized and totally committed to follow our Savior? 
to be energized about sports and vacations and hobbies and a thousand things that seek to siphon off our devotion to God and the glory of Christ. But when it comes to serving Him, it's viewed as, well, you're just a religious fanatic. When Paul says, I buffet my body, I run the race, I'm disciplined, I'm focused, because when I see Jesus Christ, I don't want to be disqualified, having heard, you've built your life on wood, hay, and stubble. I pray that God would bring about a spirit-filled, spirit-anointed, enthusiasm, excitement, commitment to live our lives for the glory of God. And if others think that's bizarre, so be it. I remember my my fifth birthday. And I remember my brother, who was always getting into something. I'm so glad he can't address you from this microphone. (laughs) He's 800 miles away. I'm not really worried about him today. (laughs) But uh, he was three, and he fell into the pool. And I remember this vivid picture of my father running across. I'd never seen my father run. Seeing my father run across the yard, and with the skill of an Olympic high jumper, scaled the wall of the pool and pulled out my little brother who was coughing and close to drowning and saved his life. Nobody thought, you know, he's really a fanatic running across the yard like that. Look at how fanatical he is. But we tend to give our best to what we love the most. And we're far too passive, church. The evil of our day is great. May God work in us. May His Spirit work within us to pour it all out. I know of some instances that have come to me this week from what you're facing in your lives that what we read about on the news is impacting all of us. And we need to be biblical, we need to be Christ-centered, we need to be courageous, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, we need to be yielded to our God as instruments of righteousness in this day. John Piper, better than anyone I've, I've read, helped me to see ultimate truths. He references Ephesians 5, wake up, O sleeper, wake up. These, these are the great things of the universe. Living the Christian life, these are the great things of the universe. And we have the unspeakable privilege of lingering here and looking at them and meditating on them and being transformed uh, to see the world for what it really is and to live in light of that truth. I know that some of you are not the least in, bit interested in these things. You have no emotional resonance with what I'm saying at all. What you really get excited about is a new computer or a a phone or a new outfit or losing five pounds or watching a ball game or adding a room to your house or getting a new car or taking a bucket list vacation. To you, 
children and teenagers and adults, I plead along with the Apostle Paul, wake up, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. He continues with this very sobering comparison. Don't be like the person who goes to the Grand Canyon with a little garden shovel in his hand and on the precipice of that majesty turns his back on the canyon and digs a little trough with a shovel and then shouts, hey, look at this. Look at my trough. Isn't it cool? I know that the pressing and desirable things of your life seem big, but just a little clear-headed thought will show you that, that they're not. Don't live your life to the fleeting pleasures of this world. Take a look at the canyon, Piper writes. In, in this context, take a look at our great God who in his redemption has come to us in the person of his son and given to us a purpose and a hope. Notice with me next, the battle we're called to fight. In verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. I want to really address maybe a thought, not maybe, a thought uh, that really is guided more by pagan Gnosticism than biblical truth. And that is, we tend to think of, of the spiritual as being what matters. The body really doesn't matter, but that's not the case the New Testament makes. Paul regularly emphasizes the body as the mechanism by which we live out the life we live. Let not, therefore, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Who rules your life? Yes, we are dead to sin, so how can sin still control us? Well, when you th we think about our bodily desires, we know what they are, don't they? They scream at us. How am I gonna use those desires? The desire of food, that serves us well. But when sin captures it, what happens? Leads to gluttony, leads to sorrow, the warnings in Proverbs on gluttony alone, the thirst uh, for a drink, all of these are functions that we need to survive. It serves us well, but when sin captures it, there can be a desire for alcoholism, there can be a desire uh, for other addictions, and the tongue becomes a weapon of unrighteousness. And then sexual desire. I can imagine some thinking, you know, how can this desire ever be satisfied? The answer to that is in marriage, but also to remember and hope that God has created a place for that to be expressed. And I'm going to yield my body and purity to the Lord. I don't have the freedom in Christ to create my own sexual ethic. 
I'm always sobered by the statement of Romans or Hebrews 13, where it says that um, the marriage bed is undefiled, fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. That God cares about how we live out the Christian life, and it, it, it mentions our body. Rest and sleep, that's important, isn't it? These are desires. But if sin captures it, it can lead to sloth. And one of the most vivid illustrations in the book of Proverbs is the sluggard who rolls around on his bed like a door on a hinge. So we need to understand our enemy's sin and it's crouching at the door. It's crouching at the door. So what am I gonna do? Am I gonna present my instruments, my weapons for sin or for righteousness? I was reminded this week of Genesis 4 and the story of Cain and Abel. And Cain offered his offering to the Lord and the Lord had no regard for Cain's offering. Abel offered his offering and the Lord had regard for Abel's offering. The writer of Hebrews says because it was offered in faith. Perhaps it could have been the wrong kind of offering, but Abel offered his offering in faith, but he had no regard for Cain's offering. And this didn't sit well with Cain. And he began to despise his brother. And God comes to, God comes to Cain and he says to him, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to master you, but you must rule over it. Isn't that instructive? Everyone in this room, sin is crouching at at our door. How are we going to respond to it? That's the point of Romans 6, that we were present ourselves to God as instruments of righteousness. And we know the sad story of Cain. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up and he killed his brother. And he bore the mark of that all the days of his life. So, one of the things that's come to me in, he, in Romans 6 is, Lord, would you encourage us? Would you sober us and would you encourage us in this walk of faith? Would you sober us and would you encourage us? Because sometimes people say, this, this just isn't for me and that you would be brought again to the foot of the cross and reminded of our loving master who comes around us. Years ago, I read from a book by Charles Swindoll of the great Paderewski. And um, he was a, 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 the famous composer and pianist who, who was scheduled to perform at a great concert hall in America. It was an evening to remember, it was tuxedos and long evening dresses and a high society extravaganza. Present in the audience that evening was a mother with her fidgety nine-year-old son. Weary of waiting, he squirmed constantly in a seat and uh, his mother was in hopes that her boy would hear the great master and want to take a piano. So there they were in this concert hall And as she turned to talk to some friends, her son 
I could stay seated no longer. He was drawn to this beautiful Steinway and the leather tuft seat on the huge stage flooded with blinding lights. Without much notice from the sophisticated audience, the boy got up and sat on the stool and began to play chopsticks, much to the shock and horror of that elite crowd. Well, some began to murmur, you know, whose who's boy is that? They need to get that boy off the stage. This is just ruining the whole event. And so backstage, um, the master overheard the sounds, picked up what was going, going on, grabbed his coat, put his coat on, and began uh, to enter the stage and came behind the boy and began to play a counter melody with chopsticks, whispering in the boy's ear, keep going, don't quit, don't stop, keep going, don't quit. And I think of our lives, you know, which often is a rendition, a poor rendition of chopsticks. And the beautiful picture of sanctification is that God who has redeemed us comes behind us and interweaves His grace to make something beautiful of our life. What hope do we have beyond that? What a master we serve. What a God we serve. Do you know Him? Do you know Him? I didn't ask if you got the booster shot. Do you know Him? By faith. Have you come to the end of your sins and seen His cross as the only hope for your life? This week, Queen Elizabeth II died at the age of 96. She had the longest reign in British history, 70 years. Uh, I watched a number of clips on her life, and she, throughout her life, gave a clear testimony of her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if she was indeed a believer, we will see her in heaven. Of all the things that matter most is your relationship with Jesus Christ. I was reminded of how fragile life is with her. I don't care how long you reign, you eventually die. And I I came across this statement from Haddon Robinson who, who said that at the end of a chess game, all the pieces go back in the same box. Whether you're a pawn or a stately knight or a bishop or a king or a queen, you go back in the same box. And the issue on that day will be Do I know him? Queen Elizabeth this week met the King of Kings. And that's the hope for every believer. Do you know him? The reason we set aside a few minutes at the end of our service is to come to terms with that question. To come to terms with, am I presenting my life? Am I committing and presenting my body as instruments of righteousness? Or am I going rogue on my own? And it's a call for us to submit to him. Would you bow with me in prayer as our team comes to sing and for all of us to think seriously about what God has said to us this morning from his word. Are you discouraged in your sanctification? He's a great master.
talk to him about it this morning in these closing moments and say, Lord, I, I need to realize who I am in Christ and by your power and grace, look to you to overcome my sin and to present myself to you, myself to you as the child of God you've called me to be. If you're without Jesus Christ, all of our rule keeping and efforts at self-improvement will fall short. That's the purpose of the cross. And maybe you've been trying and are exhausted in your own efforts to call out to him right now and say, Lord, I see that you paid it all and all to you I owe. Father, we pray in these closing moments that we would do business with you. As you've brought things to mind, may we obey you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.